Let me pray just as we turn to God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that as we've already sung in this service, it's a living word, that it's, it's active, that it's able to, to penetrate our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you would, you would still us and quieten us under your word now. That you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Tune us into your voice now. Help us hear and to receive all that you have for us now. Come by your spirit and have your way with us. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, those of you who are of a, a certain age will, uh, will recall uh, an advertisement in the, the 1990s um, for Spar that, uh, that involved a, a Belfast housewife looking in the, her cupboard and finding nothing in there and turning to her husband and saying, Fred! There's no bread. She went on to complain that there were no peas, uh, there was no milk, but it was all okay because there was a spar not too far away that was able to to solve all their problems. There's no bread. Uh, And this situation that is similar to the one that we find in Ruth chapter 1. Now, um, I can't imagine Naomi uh, in ancient Israel turning to her husband, (coughs) excuse me, and what happens when I try and speak with a Belfast accent it just goes to my throat but uh, yeah I can't imagine in ancient Israel that Naomi turned to her husband and said uh, here Elimelech there's no bread not sure that was uh, the way it happened but this is the situation that Elimelech his wife Naomi their two sons Malon and Killian face there's a famine in Bethlehem Bethlehem known as the house of bread has no bread, such as a crisis that is facing the people of Israel. And all of this takes place during what is, is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. Uh, it's described for us as in the days when the judges ruled around 1200 BC. Uh, it's a time when we witness uh, the downturn spiral of Israel's national and spiritual life. Uh, their big problem was that people had turned their backs on God. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, In a sense, everyone was choosing their own truth to live by. Choosing their own truth to live by. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard that sort of chat about the days today? The more things change, the more things stay the same. As we read in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And so all of this is going on. And as a result of the famine that's in, the, uh, in Israel, Elimelech, the father, takes a decision to head off to Moab in search of a better life for him and for his family. And in a sense, we can sympathize with this man wanting to provide for his family. The fields were barren, the crops had failed, the, the barns were empty. He had young, hungry mouths looking for food. And the decision to leave Bethlehem to head towards Moab seems to to be the pragmatic one for him to take. However, it's important to note that the place where Elimelech is leaving is actually the promised land. God had promised that his presence would dwell in Israel. God had promised to bless his people there should they walk in his ways. Yet here we see Elimelech, whose name actually means my God is king, not acting as if God is his king. 
Instead, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, instead of turning to the Lord, this little family turn their backs on the Lord and go to live in Moab in a foreign country. In this time of crisis for Elimelech and for his family, he puts his trust in his own common sense and in his own reasoning. Just like the rest of the people during the time of the judges, Elimelech does what is right in his eyes instead of putting his trust in the Lord. And while it might be easy for us to be critical of Elimelech, I wonder this morning, are we any different? Whenever we have big decisions to make or whenever crisis hits us, is our first response to pray and to ask God for direction? Or do we simply just rely on our own logic and reasoning to get us through? Are we concerned about finding out what God wants us to do? Or do we too prefer to do what seems right in our own eyes? As we read in Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him. And what does he promise? He will make your path straight. Elimelech chooses to do what is right in his own eyes and he leads his family to Moab to avoid the famine and in search of a better life. Yet sadly, rather than things improving and getting better for his family, things get much worse. Tragically, Naomi suffers a bereavement as her husband Elimelech dies. We're not told why or how he dies. All we're told is that Naomi is left with her two sons. You see, the security and the protection that Elimelech had been seeking for his family never actually materialized. His wife is now a widow, though fortunately she still has two sons. And we see these two sons marry Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, which I imagine would have been bittersweet for Naomi. You see, growing up in Israel, Naomi would have probably dreamt of her sons finding good Israelite girls to marry. The thought of them marrying Moabites would have been an absolute no-no. Let me give you a bit of background on the people of Moab. The Moabites originated in Genesis chapter 19 when Lot's daughters got their father drunk and slept with him. And this sordid affair leads to the older daughter having a son called Moab who became the father of the Moabites. And all throughout Israel's history, the Moabites were a source of trouble and strife to them. In Numbers chapter 25, it's a woman of Moab who seduced Israelite men, leading them to indulge in sexual immorality and offer sacrifices to the gods of Moab. In Judges chapter 3, we read about Eglon, the king of Moab, gathering together the Ammonites and Amalekites and attacking Israel, subjecting them to cruelty for a period of 18 years. You see, all the, the echoes of the Moabites in the Bible up to this point are dark and evil. In the eyes of the people of Israel, there is nothing positive or redeemable about them. If you were a good Israelite, you wouldn't cross the street to help one, let alone marry one. Moabites were bad news. So a double wedding involving both her sons marrying Moabites is not what Naomi would have planned growing up. But that's what we see happening. And then we're told that further tragedy strikes this family. As both of Naomi's sons die, again, we're not given any details surrounding their deaths. All we're told is that Naomi is now left with her two daughters-in-law. How much suffering and tragedy can one person be expected to deal with? 
Think of the pain, the grief, the the heartbreak of losing her two sons after previously losing her husband. Naomi finds herself in this sad and seemingly hopeless situation. She's a lonely widow living in a foreign country. In a male-dominated society, Naomi is without either the protection or provision of a husband or even her sons. She has little to no social standing, no hope of carrying on the family line. Things look very bleak for Naomi. But God had not forgotten her. God hadn't abandoned Naomi. And we see a glimmer of hope in verse 6 as Naomi hears that the Lord has come to the aid of his people back in Bethlehem by providing food for them. And we're not told how Naomi finds out. Maybe she was scrolling through her newsfeed and social media and noticed lots of her old friends posting pictures of barley or bread. Don't know, probably not. But the fact that Naomi hears that this famine is over is an act of God's grace. You see, even though Naomi was in a faraway land, even though in a sense she had left the the, the place that was a promised land and the place where God's presence dwelt, God still saw her. God still knew everything that was going on in her life. And God still cared and loved Naomi. And so as Naomi hears this good news, that the famine is over back in Bethlehem, she responds to it by getting ready to go back home. And I see this as Naomi not just returning to her hometown or her home country, but in a sense she's returning back to God. After all that she's suffered, all the grief that she's experienced, all the pain and the sorrow and the tears, Naomi chooses not to turn her back on God, but instead she chooses to return to him. And all of us have a similar choice to make. What will we do when suffering comes our way? Because in this world, we will face suffering and sorrow. It's a guaranteed part of living in a fallen world. We won't all experience the the same level of suffering, but we will all experience some level of it. Sometimes our suffering may be a consequence of, of bad choices that we make. On other occasions, we'll suffer down to the choices and decisions made by those around us while on other occasions we'll suffer simply due to the fact that we live in a world that is broken and fallen because of sin. Suffering is all around us. We all will experience. And when suffering comes our way, either we'll use it as a reason to run away from God or we'll choose to turn to God in the midst of our suffering. Naomi chooses to turn towards God and her, Ruth and Orpah start to make this journey back to Bethlehem. Until in verse 8 we see that Naomi stops them in their tracks and she turns to her daughters-in-law and invites them to leave her and to go home to their mother's house. What Naomi's doing here is she wants to, to release them from any obligation they may feel to travel the whole way back with her. Naomi realizes that as an elderly widow, the prospects for her future look bleak. She doesn't want Ruth and Orpah to be tied down and looking after her. But I also want to focus for a moment on what else Naomi says to them in verse 8. She says, may the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. The word used here for kindness is a rich Hebrew term called hesed. It's often used to refer to God's steadfast love, his faithful kindness towards us. 
It's a word that speaks of loyalty, of faithfulness, of grace, mercy, compassion. But here Naomi uses it to refer to the kindness that Ruth and Orpah have shown to her and her dead sons. Essentially, Naomi is saying that Ruth and Orpah, these Moabite women, have been agents of God's kindness in her life. During her time of grief and sorrow, God has provided comfort and support to Naomi through the friendship and love of these women. Christopher Ash points out that this is a reminder of the fact that, that God shows his kindness to us through people. And we are often agents of his kindness or called to be agents of his kindness. And sometimes I think that we can miss this, the simple ministry of just being a friend and showing kindness to one another. After the death of her husband and her two sons, Ruth and Orpah ministered to Naomi through their friendship and through their presence. They were there with her. They shared her grief, helped carry the burden. I'm sure on occasions they cried with her. On other occasions I imagine them just sitting in silence with Naomi, not having anything to say, but simply being present. Being a physical reminder that she wasn't alone. And remember, during this period, Ruth and Orpah would have been carrying their own pain. They would have been dealing with their own grief, suffered at the loss of their own husbands. But that doesn't prevent them from being agents of God's kindness in the life of Naomi. You see, we don't need to be strong or to have all the answers to life's big questions in order for God to use us as agents of his kindness. Often all we need to do is to be willing to show up and stick around. When things were tough for Naomi, Orpah and Ruth were there with her. Agents of God's kindness in her life. And I wonder this week if there's someone that you could reach out to with a phone call or a visit. Just to simply remind them that you're there for them. To tell them that you're willing to stand with them. Even though things might be tough. All of us can be a friend to someone. All of us can be agents of God's kindness in other people's lives. And we see the, the, the depth and the strength of Naomi's relationship with her daughters-in-law. We see that in the emotion described in verses 9 and 14. There's much weeping at the possibility of having to say farewell or goodbye. But after much deliberation and persuasion from Naomi, we see Orpah choosing to return to her own family. But Ruth refuses to abandon Naomi. And verses 16 to 18 are, are probably the most famous words in the book of Ruth. As Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And this is a defining moment in Ruth's life. As we see her pledging her loyalty to Naomi. But more than that, Ruth is professing her faith in Naomi's God, in Yahweh. She's also declaring that her allegiance is now with the people of God. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth here is, is taking a big risk and putting her faith in God. She's turning away from everything that she's known, everything that has previously been familiar to her throughout her life. She's leaving her town, her friends, her family. She's turning her back on her religion, on her gods. To go to a place that she'd never been to before, not knowing what lay in store for her. 
Would she be welcomed into the Israelite community? Would the stigma of being a Moabite result in in further hardship or rejection for her when she got to Bethlehem? Ruth doesn't know what the future holds, but she surrenders her future hopes and dreams into God's hands. She trusts that he would provide for her. It's an incredible act of faith and it's a challenge to all of us this morning. The example of Ruth reminds us that to follow Jesus, to walk with God involves turning our back on the world and on the things of this world. There's always a cost. Yet I love how things end up for Ruth. I want to give you a spoiler in the story of Ruth and I want you to to turn with me to the book of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 1. Because in Matthew chapter 1 is recorded for us the the genealogy of of Jesus, the timeline of, of Jesus. And we see it begins in in verse 2. We see Abraham, the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And then it goes on and in verse 5, if we pick it up there, we see Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of King David. And then we go down to verse 16. We see Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You see, as Ruth makes her way back to Bethlehem, as she arrives there, God provides a husband for her in the form of a man called Boaz. And they make it into Jesus' family tree. This Moabite, good-for-nothing foreigner, is welcomed into the family line of the Messiah. Through Ruth and her obedience here and her embracing the cost of following Jesus, it leads to the birth of Jesus. This morning, as we consider what the cost might be for us to follow Jesus, what he might be inviting us to turn away from, let me remind you as I finish what he has done for you and for me. Whenever we consider Jesus, we consider the one who left the glory of heaven to come to earth. Jesus, the one who said, your skin will become my skin, as he took on human flesh and blood. Jesus, who said, your struggles will become my struggles, as he allowed himself to be tempted as we are in every way. Only he did not sin. Jesus, who said, your pain will become my pain, as he wept at the grave of a close friend, as he experienced rejection and abandonment by his closest friends. Jesus, who said, your sin will become my sin as he took our sin upon himself. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus who said your death will become my death as he died in our place on the cross. And Jesus who today says his victory over sin and death can be our victory if we choose to put our trust in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your knowledge of us. We thank you for your grace that pursues us even when we are far from you. And we thank you today for Jesus. We thank you for the willingness of Jesus to to give up the glory of heaven to come to earth. We thank you that he was able to, to live the life that we can't live perfect life in 
perfect obedience to you. And because he was perfect in every way, then he was able to be the sacrifice in our place. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. Also that we can know forgiveness, that we can know peace with you, our God. And we can know your presence with us each and every day as your Holy Spirit dwells within us. Father, would you help us to follow Jesus, to walk with you every day of our lives. Help us to turn away from the things that so often distract us or trip us up. Help us today to to see a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is, our Saviour and our King. All this we pray in his name. Amen.